0: the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Hi, my name is Nikki, and I am the chef at Ennaka. Well, one of the chefs at Ennaka. There are many chefs at Ennaka, but I am am Nikki.
2: (laughs) It
3: should be noted that just walking in here and... The atmosphere, it's sort of like a visual head massage. It's very (laughs) relaxing and really nice. Hi, I'm Helen Holliman, Editor-in-Chief of Munchies, and welcome back to our LA series of Munchies, the podcast. Today, we're diving into one of the most decadent life experiences, kaiseki cuisine, a traditional multi-course Japanese dinner. And if there's anyone in the world who's revolutionizing this signature art form, it's trailblazing chef Niki Nakayama, who's reinterpreting it over 13 courses at her LA restaurant and Naka. Kaiseki's structure is a formal procession of courses with roots in ancient Buddhist ritual, and it's also prepared almost exclusively by men. To experience this Olympian-like pacing of courses is unlike anything else you've ever encountered in restaurants. At Naka, all the action takes place out of sight, and it's Nikki's humble attitude that inspires the food to become the main focus. I headed over to Naka to meet with Nikki and learn more about how she crafts her modern style with California produce. I also wanted to figure out how she's dramatically changing this very historically male-dominated, hyper-traditional genre of cooking for the better.
1: So my cousin and my aunt and uncle have a Japanese inn, and that's in Niigata, which is northwest of Tokyo. The area is famous for rice and sake. The first time I actually stayed with them, I remember them telling me to go oh, go upstairs and grab some rice for dinner. And I remember opening that rice warmer, it was like glowing, an angel singing, like what is this rice I've never seen this before it was shiny and beautiful and it was just the most luxurious looking rice I'd ever seen before because growing up in in LA I mean with my parents the only rice that we have is what was available just nearby and then there was a stark difference like between like opening a, the rice cooker here where it was like dry and just like oh it's just rice but there it was like I just upon like this big treasure of deliciousness. It was really amazing. And that's when I realized how important uh, ingredients in the right environment and in the right places and the right care become. Okay. <laughs> um, sorry, we were talking about my experience. My personal experience with Kaiseki was when I visited um, my relatives and that was my first time actually having a sit-down kaiseki meal. The most amazing thing about it was I had never experienced Japanese food in such a formal way where it's, you recognize it visually but there's so many things going on. It, it felt so elaborate and so elegant and it was such an amazing experience, to, such a wonderful way to enjoy food. It was a whole different level. And then just the freshness of the ingredients, the whole um, concept of the ingredients, and how its usage was so exciting and new to me. Because even growing up here, just eating with family, it's very family style. And when you go out and eat in Japanese restaurants here, there aren't that many uh, restaurants that represent that very formal type of dining. So when I first experienced, I was so moved by it. I was like, oh my God, why don't people eat like this more often in the States? And then I thought, maybe one day I'll be able to open something like this. (laughs) It was just an eye-opening experience.
3: I would love to hear your perspective on um, the traditional ethos of kaiseki.
1: Okay. Um, So, kaiseki is rooted in tea ceremony, and it was originally created as a part of tea ceremony, which is, um, it's the very formal Japanese um, way of presentation rooted in Zen, and it's very, um, has religious intonations and backgrounds to it. Um, In its original form, kaiseki is completely vegetarian. I think I would say that it was vegan but over the years it's progressed into two different types of um forms of cuisine and dining whereas the original is very um very subtle very kind of subdued the newer version of kaiseki is more of an elaborate banquet and uh, even the writing of it has um two separate ways of writing in in Japanese uh, kanji so one being Um, a stone to the chest, which is what Buddhists used to do to sort of stave off hunger. And then the other one is um, a seated banquet. So um, the style that we do at Ennaka is, of course, the seated um, banquet style because it involves a lot of very intricate ingredients and we don't do it's not vegan it's very it's a about celebration it's a more of a celebratory type of dining experience so there's going to be a lot more um, fancy ingredients versus just vegetables
3: you know the experience of the meal is all about rhythm and Mm -hmm. movement and showcasing different technique but Was there a specific dish that kind of opened your eyes to the whole experience?
1: Um, I think when I was in Japan, the one dish that I tried that was so amazing was this crab head that um, had just been caught that day. And all the meat had been removed from it, but the innards of uh, the crab were left intact. And the meat was just put on there, and then just a little simple dashi broth with a steamed egg and it was like the most amazing thing I'd ever had in my life <laughs> it was just so simple but so delicious and I personally love a lot of brothy types of um, Japanese food I, I like broth in a lot of things and this was just I couldn't explain it. I was like I never had anything like that I felt um, so I felt like it was such a an experience I couldn't even explain in words what it felt like This <laughs> just amazing
3: sounds so good. Mm -hmm. How, so, okay, you do a 13 course Mm -hmm. tasting menu. And, you know, in terms of the flow of service for you, thinking about, you know, a lot of chefs will talk about the moment of flow when you hit kind of that magic moment in the kitchen together and you're all cooking seamlessly and it feels great every night when you're doing that, is there a specific course or a moment that it always hits or does it change for you?
1: Um, I believe for me it would be the second dish, which is our, we call it the zensai, and it's our um, main appetizer dish. It's comprised of a lot of little elements to it. And um, the whole idea being that every element of the dish I try to give it meaning for myself by setting my own little guidelines on how I should build it. So the concept for me is, in Japanese, we have um, in our alphabet, it's it, the syllables are a i u e o, but uh, in, there, and then it goes down and there's a sashi se So, but the funny thing is, we also use that for seasoning. So we use like the counting, so sa being like sugar shi being salt and su vinegar se soy sauce and so miso and you basically add ingredients in those orders according to japanese cooking philosophy so you always add sugar first before you add the the um, salt then you would add the vinegar after that and then if you need it you would add the soy sauce, and then if you were going to do something else after that, then you would add the miso. So I tried to put that into that Zen side, like where every element has something that's representative of those syllables. And um, when I'm putting it together, every single element is separated, but they're connected. And then when I can get that out on time with the flow... It just feels like everything's going to be okay from that moment
3: on. You work with an amazing forager, and you, you know, work with amazing farms. How do you go about your process of composing a dish? Um, I think for uh, me, composing a dish always starts
1: with what ingredient is readily available at that moment. And I always think in terms of a complete dish, it should never be something where you're trying to finish that last bite. We try to create dishes where you want to you wanna have one more bite even though there's nothing left. I think that's very important. So when we take that into consideration, that means you have to take in um, the overall feel of a dish, which means is the acidity balanced with the savory and... Is a sweetness balanced well with any kind of bitterness? It's constantly recalibrating that dish so that it's never overwhelming or powerful in one particular way where you're like, oh, my God, I just can't take another bite. That's the goal of it. And it doesn't necessarily translate all the time for every diner because people have varying appetites. But the goal being that that's the main focus. And that's just one element of the dish. But when you think of the whole meal, then you have to think of textures and uh, varying degrees of taste that fit into those things so that you're not rep- being repetitive of creamy and creamy and creamy or it's just constantly like it has to shift and move so that when people eat the whole meal it, it feels very satisfying but not overwhelmingly like they're where people aren't overwhelmingly full after it's just and <laughs> to add to that if we can showcase as many ingredients that's part of the Japanese hospitality where we're not just repeating the same ingredients for you all the time you get to have as many things to try as much as possible
3: Sounds a lot like trying to compose an album every night <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> There's so many different elements and I know that yes. in past interviews you've mentioned that you know food is sort of the, the main star and you're the supporting actor yes. and you know In terms of thinking back to the ingredients, like what blows your hair back right now, like what right now in California is just like blowing your mind.
1: (laughs) What right now in California is blowing my mind. This is really hard because it just really depends on the season. Um, I think the most exciting thing that I got to work with uh, was we were we're part of a program with Doctor Dish, which is a kind of like a CSA for seafood, for lack of a better explanation, but they're direct fishermen to a restaurant. So that's the program. And I think um, the most exciting thing that they brought to me w- were these shrimps called Ridgeback Shrimp. And, uh, before then, I had never worked with it before. And it was so exciting because I tasted it and, and I was like, these taste exactly like uh, a Miami spot prawns. They're just a lot smaller. And, um, I thought it's kind of a shame that people don't know more about it and whatever, however it's being used may not necessarily highlight how amazing they are Uh, because I think after that I saw it at a couple of Asian markets but they were just served like kind of fried when they're so delicious sashimi style and I thought that was an amazing, um, it was such an amazing discovery given that it's just here in our backyard. And how do they taste? They're um, plump and they're really sweet. They're really delicious. They have this creaminess uh, undertone to it. So they were just really nice and clean.
3: You're making me really hungry. (laughs) 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 So thinking about your guests, you know, you mentioned before how, you know, different guests have obviously different appetites and Mm -hmm. larger, smaller stomachs. Um, One of the most interesting things that I think you do is you keep kind of a dossier of sorts on all of your guests to Mm -hmm. kind of Remember what they ate the last time they were here or allergies, etc Since you've been open over the course of sort of that book if you will how Has that affected how you cook and how has that affected your relationship to your guests um, I do believe that our guests
1: are appreciative when we remember and recognize that um the things that they don't like and things that they do like. I think it's a, a level of service that is really important in a dining experience like ours because we're already asking them not to um pick what they wanna eat, but allowing us the luxury of choosing the food for them. And I think as much as we can, we try to accommodate people's um, needs and their dietary restrictions. Of course, we have to be mindful that there is a level of um, a place where we have to just be able to just say no, we're so sorry that we can't accommodate those certain restrictions. But overall, just having those notes really, really help shape the, um, menu planning for me in that I think there's so much to look back to and if I could just find a way for myself to keep looking forward instead of looking back to to find old dishes to remake again um, it's, it's a wonderful way to stay ahead of the game and also to remind me what what
3: works and what doesn't
0: For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
3: Maybe you had a restriction of some sort and it actually helped blossom like a new dish for you that you were like, oh, this is so good. I have to do it again. I, <laughs> I feel like that for every restriction I get.
1: <laughs> Initially when, I, when I'm made aware of the restriction, my of course my initial, in, um, reaction is like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> but um, if I if there's enough time and space to sort of like really think about it, it's always amazing what we're able to come up with. And sometimes it's easier to work within restrictions than without. When you have restrictions, you, you sort of take away all the other things that you can work with. And then you're, since you're forced to work with these specific Um, ideas it actually helps create many dishes and I always think I have to be thankful to people who give me these restrictions because there have been so many times where I wouldn't have thought of it had it not been under those circumstances
3: Mm -hmm. so yes is there a dish currently on the menu that is very close to you Uh,
1: I think um, Yes, there is a dish on the menu that's currently very close to me. I feel that every time um, we're able to develop a dish that is new and unlike other dishes that we've done before, I can't help but feel an affinity to to it because it makes me feel like uh, the creative um, ideas are still available. It's not like I've reached any block or anything. So I'm grateful to be able to create dishes that are still new and right now we have on one of our menus a it's a marinated black cod that we serve roasted but we take um, little pieces of rice paper that are crisped up uh, via frying and then um, it's it's placed on top of the fish so kind of kind of like its scale and the most awesome part of it is the sauce that sort of just came out of nowhere the sauce is um the braising liquid that we use to cook our first dish which is um it's a conch shell and um that braising liquid i was able with that braising liquid i put together sort of like a demi-gloss sauce and it's really interesting because it's so deep like a demi but then it doesn't have any beef broth or or meat broth in it it's seafood based so it adds a whole different kind of like element to it, which is really exciting to me because it's like taking some knowledge that I have and then adding some new knowledge and putting it together and then having it be totally different for me. So it's like a whole new sauce in a whole new way to me. and But it tastes familiar because it's similar to demigloss, but then it's not.
3: We're in one of, I think, the greatest food cities in the world, clearly. It's a place that just has, like, every kind of amazing food you could want. On your day off, do you ever go somewhere to gather inspiration? Or where do you go to kind of recharge your creative juices? Um, On my day off, it's very hard
1: to make plans to go out and eat so much. I mean, I always go to comfort places. Like, there's a lot of great... Um, noodles near where I live because I live in the San Gabriel Valley right now, and um, I end up eating a lot of just really simple foods because I feel that the best inspiration sometimes comes from the things that are put together like simply because they are instead of an overthought dish, and I like I like to be inspired and to be reminded what food should taste like and that I shouldn't. It's sort of a, a great way to remind myself that as much as we like to put things because ideas sound great or elements sound great, that at the core of everything we'd like to eat is something that is comforting and delicious. I think that's very important for a good dining experience.
3: Thinking kind of on the opposite side of the kitchen, like as a diner, how should we enjoy a kaiseki meal because in the kitchen it's all about setting the pace and the rhythm of things but for us like you know sometimes people have a tendency to like speed eat or you know mm-hmm. eat something and just be like that was good okay what's next you know how should we mentally approach it as we're going through it
1: i feel that um with people who really enjoy eating um generally it, it because they're they don't know what they're expecting that element itself sort of grounds people to sort of be more aware of what's coming or more aware of what is in front of them because it's like it's kind of like uh something what they call the beginner's mind where everything is just a new like a new thing for them and i think um that's our way of trying to sort of put them help them just be in the moment at that time. I think that that's the best way that I could describe it. I can't say that people who've been to our restaurant several times can still be able to enjoy it at that pace, but that's why it's very important for us to bring new dishes to their experience so that it's still surprising, it's still unique, it's still a mindful experience. So get off our cell phones, basically. (laughs) It would be nice. I mean, the whole thing is... Part of the, the reason why this restaurant is intimate in the way that it is is because I have this really great uh, affinity and liking for dinner parties and I, I love I enjoy eating with my friends or with my family just taking time to eat food and have food be something that connects us together that we could talk about it we could you know enjoy it enjoy an experience together and I think that it's my hope that when people come that they can give themselves that. Space and time to sort of, you know, forget about everything else, you know, just enjoy this moment.
3: So, one of the things um, environmentally is you have a partition between (laughs) the kitchen and the dining room. Can you kind of describe how that came about?
1: Um, So, when I first had this restaurant designed, it was going to be an open kitchen because I thought it was important in reading the guests. But as time went on, I just couldn't help but feel that, you know, having that partition between us in the kitchen and the guests sort of creates, it forces people to really focus on their own dining experience versus having this visual uh, aspect of it and being distracted by it. And then um, one thing led to another and we we're was like, let's just close the kitchen. <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, it's it's such an interesting thing because I feel mm-hmm. like the trend now is the open kitchen, and you're totally right. I think it makes such a different experience that really does focus on the yes. dish. Yes,
1: I, I I think that it's far more intimate when you're able to just engage in your own dinner versus being distracted. There's so much distraction everywhere we go, and you shouldn't be distracted from your experience. You should just, you should, <laughs> you should enjoy
3: that what you're here for, which is the food of thinking about the greatest kaiseki chefs in the world you're one of them and um you know traditionally in looking at the world of sushi for example you know it's tends to be a male dominated industry and i think you know it's such an exciting time right now um in food do you think that we'll see more female chefs um leading through kaiseki i think the one um
1: One thing that's so exciting for me is I feel that with Ennaka and being a female chef, doing kaiseki, it sort of puts a whole new image of the type of people that can do kaiseki. Like It's not not, um, limited to this particular idea of what a chef should look like. I think it's now very open for what kaiseki
3: can be and who can do kaiseki. us come crash your kitchen. So Thank you. What, uh, what are you selling or what are you buying today?
1: Well, um, this is the most exciting thing that we wanted to talk about with Ennaka because um, I have so many guests that come and they've experienced kaiseki in Japan and they have experienced kaiseki maybe somewhere else in Asia and they're like, oh, this is not really really like Japan or this is not really like, you know, the kaiseki and some people might be like who are traditionalists might think that we're not Japanese enough or we're, we're it's for lack of a better word, it's fusion. <laughs> but but it's upsetting and not necessarily upsetting, it's just um it would be nice if we could inform people that, you know, when you really take Kaiseki into consideration, the whole philosophy of kaiseki is about um being local, about trying to translate all the best things that are around us into food. I mean like to translate those ingredients into something that's even more special. And that's what I want people to understand that it doesn't make sense for me to be in America, in Los Angeles, California, making food that tastes like it should be in Tokyo, Japan, or Kyoto, Japan. It just doesn't because we're not in Kyoto. We're not in Tokyo. There's ingredients there that are amazing that they can get that are just an hour away from Every restaurant, and there's amazing ingredients that we can get that just aren't our way, and it's not the same ingredients, but we could do our best to use the Japanese technique and the Japanese seasonings and the cookings to bring that to life, and, and it's my hope that we can find new flavors or find new combinations that aren't necessarily like a hundred percent traditional Japanese. So, with that being said, we have an amazing forager working with us today, and his name is Pascal Bardar, and he's perhaps the most famous forager in Los Angeles. I think he is the most famous forager in Los Angeles. And he's brought us these amazing things from um, the mountains nearby to, for us to work with. Cool. Mm-hmm.
3: Can we... Yeah. Do you mind if we maybe just get yeah, some sound bites of sure. what he's selling? <laughs> 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 so, please so please talk
1: show. to Pascal and Carol, or
2: Hello. we, are, are <laughs> we? Hello.
1: Hello. <laughs> she keeps the whole kitchen together. <laughs> Carol keeps the as kitchen together as <laughs> as while dynastical. I tear it apart, <laughs> and then drive her crazy while I tear it apart.
3: <laughs> Someone has to tame the insanity. <laughs>
2: I got you some beautiful black mustard, by the way. Oh the that's big that's one. Do
1: you spicy. have one of your big mustards
2: that you wish? Not today. Not today. Too hot, I too wish. Too hot, the I weather. Wish. Yeah, The weather
1: is so affecting
2: everything that comes in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Mostly uh, foraging is so seasonal, too. It's... If it's too hot, that's it. Yeah.
3: What are you currently... Like, what did you bring today?
2: Nikki is experimenting with uh, pine and rocks. I, she's going to explain what she wants to do, but uh, cooking with rocks, right? So, I've been foraging like rocks. Yeah, we made another <laughs> our rocks, and
3: we're like, they have to be like an inch and a half, not any bigger than two inches, and they can't be smaller than an inch. So, he was just explaining his journey about the forest, looking for these perfectly sized rocks for us. <laughs> wow, and what do you plan on doing with those? Do you um, have any idea? That was Carol Ida Nakayama, Nikki's life partner and sous chef we're going to heat them up and as pascal was just explaining to me when the native people used to have clay pots you know they couldn't put the clay pots over the fire to create soup so they would use rocks over the fire and insert the hot rocks into the clay pots which had the liquid and the soup bases in them so kind of following that native tradition we're going to do our japanese version of it with you know it will create a nice steam and you know fragrance and all of that once the hot rock is inserted or once we pour the soup on top of the hot rock so so is today the first day that you're going to test this out? yes Yes. cool well Pascal you must have like a very uh kind of thoughtful look at you can't look at rocks the same way ever again right? that's correct
2: (laughs) and i discovered that uh, rocks that are an inch and a half are pretty rare <laughs> 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 they all end up like b- below one inch or above two inches so <laughs> it, it was it was actually two locations to get those tiny little rocks did you know. have
3: like a ruler or how are you
2: sizing them? I used to be a graphic designer I know an inch <laughs> and a half is like some of them are bigger this is definitely two inches but I was looking for pretty rocks too you know because I know she's very aesthetic so sounds, you I want
3: have your job? It sounds so like relaxing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: he's
3: the
1: happiest guy we know because he's just like in nature, in all, nature. all day.
2: <laughs> and, you know. That's the image. The the reality is like oh damn, it's so hot. <laughs> like why am I doing <laughs> this? <laughs> why am I looking for rocks? <laughs>
3: Bug bites, and bug yeah. bites falling down the side of the hill, <laughs> yeah.
2: going swimming. My, you can see my, my feet are actually still completely wet, so <laughs> it's because I actually fell in the water today. So, so it's part of the fun. Yeah, but she's the only chef. I mean, the two of them like went with me and start he getting,
1: getting. where
2: all the wild mushrooms were. Around. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you must really <laughs> trust them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, must I must. I yeah. Yeah. I trust them. Yeah. I don't think they're gonna go by themselves. We have a horrible <laughs> sense of direction,
1: so no, no, no. we're just like we never go anywhere without Pascal.
2: <laughs> I tell them there's a lot of bears and yeah. wolves yeah. and <laughs> mountain lions.
3: That was my afternoon with the amazing Nikki Nakayama. Thank you so much to Nikki, Carol their forager, Pascal, and the entire staff at NNACA for letting us spend some time in the restaurant and also serving me one of the most incredible, unforgettable meals I've had. That wraps up our LA series of Munchies the Podcast. Check back in two weeks when we're going international and heading to Denmark, so it's gonna get a little crazy. Until then, get all of our delicious Munchies content over at munchies.tv. Hit us up at Munchies on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook too. And if you like the show, go rate us on iTunes, because it actually helps us out. I'm Helen Holliman. I'll catch y'all in two weeks.